Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Between Two Studs. I'm Alex Studd. And I'm Ron Studd. Ron, episode 32, and tonight I have a former boss, my old Ooh. manager, on the call. Check that out. Jen Bassick, how are you doing tonight? Hi, everyone. I'm great. Stud bros. Welcome. Thank you. This is very, very thrilling. Jen, so good to have you on the show. Uh, you know the drill. You've listened to some episodes. We're going to get right into the Ember Round. So I kind of gave a little sneak peek, but give me a little bit more. What's the background? How do you know us? How do you know me? So I know Alex. Um, as Alex mentioned, I used to be his boss, his manager um, at a former company called Dialogue Tech. And we have stayed in touch. Um, we had some good times. We only spent a few months together in the office before everything went remote. Um, so this is one of the first times we're seeing each other in a while, but we worked together. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. I started in, I want to say it was, it was July, and I didn't have a boss. I was sort of in this strange, like, ether uh, and then you came around, what was it in October of that year? This was 2019. Yeah. Yep. So, and then one day it was just like that person over there, that's, that's your boss. I was I like, know. cool. And it actually, it was, it was fantastic. It was. And then I all do of a sudden, remember meeting you, you kind of popped your head up and was where you were just as friendly as ever and sent me, you gave me a box of tissues. <laughs> I said, prepare, prepare to work with me. Here's a box of right. tissues. No, I think I was like, you know, you're going to cry a lot. Right, right. You're going to need <laughs> these. But then you like went and found the box of tissues and gave me tissues. Well, and if I remember, I think you said like after we got to know each other for a couple of days, I think you were like, Alex, when I when I accepted the job, I didn't even know I, ha I was inheriting someone on the team. Like I, you didn't even know I was there. That was part of the package. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, there was one Nisha was mentioned, but she was on maternity leave. Someone that wasn't, you know, a part of the interview process. But then there was really no mention of you. I don't think that should you should take that personally. But I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised. I'm like, oh, I guess we have a team. That's awesome. Kind of switching gears, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of your hobbies and interests? Oh boy. Um, I, I'm just sort of your average person. I don't really have anything um, extraordinary to note. Um, I work in marketing for a technology company now known as Invoca. I, my career at this point is decades long, so I don't even know how to summarize it. But I'm just like a curious person that sort of just like goes through things, like goes through life exploring different curiosities, pretty eclectic background. And I have two young girls. Um, so I'd say most of my mind is occupied with how to raise them and things that I want to show them and expose them to. And some choices I make are wrong. Sometimes I'm spot on. So it's an exhausting back and forth exercise, but otherwise, live in Chicago and just have a pretty low key life in these days. <laughs> That's it. Well, very nice. Well, I know that one of the things that we do and thank you so much for listening to our episodes, by the way. Uh, but one of the things that we always like to do is we have to kind of kick off each episode with a Chicago delicacy. Malort, our official sponsor of season two. Our, yes, they are the official sponsor. I, I assume you don't actually have Malort on you, do you? I don't. No. Uh -oh. No. This I this is this is this is a toast to you, and then we'll go around uh -huh. the room and talk about uh, what we're drinking as our general drink. 
But this, Jen, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we love Malort. Cheers to you guys. Cheers. So with that, we will go around. Because I okay. Ron is the only person I know who actually will sip on Malort. Everyone else I know, everyone in Chicago I've ever met, it's just a shot. Most people, obviously, as you know, don't particularly care for it. But Ron has an affinity for it. But what are you drinking tonight? I know I did. I have got a 19 Crimes uh, Snoop Cali Red um, in a jar. And that's it. Pretty, pretty smooth. Pretty good weekday red. Um, Found at your local Target. Cheers to you. Love it. Cheers. Ron, what are you working on? Well, I'm continuing. I've, I've, I've made it another week. Um, but anyway, I'm having water tonight, unfortunately. Really boring. So what about you, Alex? You know, so I I am partaking in, in alcohol. I will say, first time in my in my life, back in November, I was I was in Maine and I was at this um, distillery and they they have they have this gin, back river gin. And I'm not a gin guy. This is literally the first and only bottle of gin I've ever bought in my entire life. And it's actually really, really good. Um, it supposedly got all these awards and all that. I'm not a gin guy, but it's delicious, and especially for the winter. So that's what I'm working on. drink it? I'm just drinking it on the rocks. But, you know, I, I thought about when I was pouring this today. Um, I was like, oh, do we have any lemons or limes? We don't. But I think ideally a little bit of that, a little spritz. But it's it's very good. So if you ever see Back River Gin, that's it. Let's see the bottle. Oh, very cool. Oh, yeah. It's um it's one of those things too where Alex, you remember at your bachelor party we went to Castle and Key? I do. Right? I was at the local liquor store and they actually had a, a rep from there and they actually were selling they had some samples of their gin, like they do a highly botanical gin and as is botanical with Malort, I also really enjoyed that. But I think more people would like that gin too. But well, gin is having like a resurgence, right? Like, I feel right. like gin is like now kind of popular in the states. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think part of that has to do with too a lot of uh, companies trying to get into distilling. A lot of you know they're basically the first year or two you have to wait for your stuff to age. So one of the things that they can do is say, okay, well, yeah, we distilled some, some gin. Come try that or come buy our vodka or, or other things. While we're but, waiting on our whiskey. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That's efficient. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so Jen, this question is, is the highlight, right? We always say that, no pressure, but we've gotten some, some really great answers um, since, we, since we started asking this. What's a piece of art, and again, art can mean anything, but whether it's a song or a movie or a book or painting, something that speaks to you, represents you, whatever you want to interpret the question and tell us about it. First of all, I love your question. I love the way it's framed because as evidenced by your first question about tell me about yourself, that's way too open-ended and I don't know what to say ever when someone says stuff like that. So. I appreciate the directness of your question and kind of the way that it made me think. Uh, so I, I came up with the Anthony Bourdain series of either Parts Unknown or No, no Reservations. 
And the reason I say that is less about the food, although it's definitely about the food, but it's less about that, but it's more about the way he views food as a thread for people. Mm. And I just never stopped thinking about that. And when he died, it really, I, I was one of those people that felt that he could single-handedly and probably did change the world. And I just was so sad that that was gone. And, and I think just the way that I grew up in Filipino culture and probably so many others, food is what we do. We gather with food. We introduce ourselves to people with food. We, we have people, we mourn over food. Like everything is revolving around that. So I just loved his sense of exploration and how food was just a means to connect with people. It's just, it's just a beautiful model. I, I totally agree. Have you seen the, the new documentary, uh, Roadrunner? No, no. I need, is it out? Do I need yeah, to see I, it like tonight? I, I just saw it the other day on a plane. Uh, I highly recommend it. I don't know if it's if it's on Netflix yet, but honestly, I I feel very similarly. I, you know, I remember I remember reading his book Kitchen Confidential, and and just being immersed by this guy. I'm not a foodie, right? Like, give me McDonald's, I'll, I'm fine. But but the way he would break down barriers culturally. Um, was just incredible and awe-inspiring. And I totally, like, I'm not someone who gets caught up in celebrities. And when, you know, I get the little news feed that a celebrity died, this sounds terrible. I normally just kind of like, okay. When he, when I got the notification that he died, I, I remember it, it It really bummed me out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked your comment specifically about how he really was very good at, as well about I think just kind of approaching different situations like he had his own kind of great sense of humor but he was always very warm and welcoming to others as well as outsiders who this is probably a little different than what you're used to here's what you should know here's why you should check this out his sense of humor and I think just there were so many tenets of just being a good person that I think he exemplified so well in that series and it was fun to watch Oh yeah, I mean, it made you hungry for sure, but it also just made you feel like you wanted to get out and feel and see and meet and all the things that it was just gorgeous, just beautiful way of living. Yeah. So I, I don't live like that in terms of like the, you know, getting out and as much, nearly as much as he did. So it's, it's not that more, but it's more about like the approach to learning something about every experience that you do and and using something that grounds you like your commonalities as a way to connect with people i just think that we can all learn from something like that i love that answer and and i'll say you know one of the things i've always found very interesting is you know hold on to covid for a moment like a pre-covid world people are willing to spend a lot of money on on different things but people somehow make a difficult justification to travel. And it's interesting because you're willing to invest in yourself when it comes to something like education, formal education. But really, you can get such a strong education by just getting on a plane and going somewhere. So Yes. Yeah. And I, I this is where I struggle. This is where he and I are markedly different is, I mean, I've traveled a lot in my life, but just since children have not. But we're, the way we parent is, very much in that 
everything is an experience to learn from. And I'm kind of, this is why I say I'm, there's nothing really extraordinary about what I do, but I, I believe in finding something unique and interesting, even if you go across the street, or if you go to a hole in the wall place, like there's always something you can learn, a new experience. And so I get made fun of from my children because I'm like, this is, you know, seemingly a very boring place to be, but like I tend to find all the little glitches and the nuances that they can remember and learn from. That's beautiful. And it's so important too. Like I kind of have a similar thing with my daughter and uh, my wife and I, we go to a lot of different places and it's, it's, yeah, I've seen where she will sometimes kind of be like, yeah, that wasn't that interesting. But then it's weird because she'll learn about something in history class or whatever. And she's like, Oh, I kind of see where, okay, that was, that was okay. And so much of that I think is just, uh, it's just a great way to approach life. Yeah, I think it just makes you, I don't know, I think about, Ron, you probably feel this, you know, raising your daughter. I always think about the things that influenced me as a child. And it could be this tiny, tiny experience that you had that seemed fleeting, but it had this like huge impression on me. So if I think about like going to the symphony, I mean, we mm-hmm. probably went 10 times, maybe eight times, five times in my entire life. But I re- when I go, it takes me back to this, moment of going as if I grew up there and I'm like wow that was such a small experience I had that like opened my eyes tremendously so just things like that that I'm like sort of probably obsessed about exposing them to many many different things but I don't know you never know it's amazing too something like that where you gave the symphony example maybe as a child you went and didn't think much of it but all of a sudden 20 years later it's like, wow, you know what? I actually do remember that experience very vividly. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I will say they're not all that like, you know, high end like experience. Sometimes it's like, oh, I took that gymnastics class at the park district and I met someone that, what I mean, you know, had a blue bicycle. Like sometimes it's mundane things, but you know, life is life. And it is. That's totally so right. So speaking of life, what? Name one way that COVID has permanently impacted your life. Ideally, something good, but sometimes the reality is it's been bad. But uh, Ron, uh, Alex and I actually started this podcast, for instance. Yes, you did. And thank you for that. We're, we're, we're grateful for your content that you put out <laughs> in the world. You know, laughs and storytelling, it's all great. I have changed the way I cook um, and changed the way I, I don't know if it's meal prep, if that's the word, but like you know, in the early days of COVID when you sort of had to just use what you had, I got pretty good at that. And yeah, so I guess that would, you know, it changed, I guess, our lifestyle. It changed the way we prepare food. My, our little bit of our palates changed because we didn't have certain things and you had to get creative, but I would say I got really good at cooking. Um, but not like high end stuff, but really, you know, like soups, I can make great soup and stews and pastas and stuff. But you, you just had to get creative. But there's a show, which is in the theme of this whole cooking show, the show called like Salt, Acid, Fat, Heat. I'm totally like butchering the name. But the whole idea is that there's like these four elements to cooking that I guess I, that's, I just use those four principles and it, uh, it worked. I love that. Well, it, it's funny. Our friend of the show who's been on multiple times, Ruben, he's a chef and actually... When, when I was younger, 
Um, I used to bring him over to my my little apartment and he would laugh at what little stuff I had because I was like 23 year old kid right out of right out of college. And I'd be like, I'd challenge him. I'd be like, take this stuff and turn it into something. And he would. And it's cool when you can be resourceful like that. That's amazing. I did listen to the Ruben episode because I was like, I need to meet this guy. Oh, yeah. He's a character. That's awesome. He's great. He's so great. Yeah. So, but yes, that, that's sort of the idea, but probably not nearly as good as Ruben's. Well, I'll say this. I'm sure, I'm sure it is excellent. But most importantly, you passed the Ember Ring. That's a new effect this year. But Ron, we got to figure out, like, it's got to be like three seconds and we got to like phase it up and phase that, it down. That was exactly three, but. Well, yeah, but. It, I'll add some custom. It went to the there. peak and then all of a sudden it, it was a cliff. Just dropped. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to fade out. But yeah. it definitely. We'll get, we'll get better. It, we'll was, get better. it was very exciting. So now we get into the kind of the meat and potatoes of the show. Now that we know you a little bit better. You studied chemical engineering in college, yet you talked about it earlier. You ended up in marketing. How did that happen? I think we always find it fascinating when people make a huge or at least a perceived huge shift in their careers. Sure. Yeah, I I was a chemical engineer, but never, never felt comfortable in my skin. I did not enjoy that profession. Um, but one thing I did enjoy, so I worked for a number of manufacturing companies, making agricultural chemicals, making pharmaceuticals, and then ultimately making products, like consumer products, like Barbie dolls, um, as an engineer. But I was, I just didn't really like the, the environment of engineering. Um, I wanted something a little bit more creative, a little bit more consumer friendly. It just was very rugged, and I just didn't enjoy that. But what I did enjoy was the process of making things. And I grew up, my dad was a chemist and he had a manufacturing plant um, that was his. He owned a company that made adhesives, glue. And uh, you know, so if you look at a book, you know, the adhesives that bind the glue together or the, the glue that binds the pages together yeah. or McDonald's boxes or Hallmark, you know, cards, whatever. Those were his customers. And I grew up in the plant. I grew up in, you know, the front office of answering phones and doing bills and accounts receivable and the whole thing. And it wasn't until probably 10 years ago that I realized that that whole process of making a product from start to finish um, was really what I was curious about. It wasn't about the science of it. It wasn't about the like, chemical engineering, which at the time just made my parents happy that I was an engineer, but it wasn't, that's not why I was drawn to the profession. So I was just really curious about how things come to be and working as a, as an engineer on the Barbie brand. So making product development and the whole thing from like a product, from a drawing to an assembly line. I was very much a part of that. I started to be curious about the after it's made, what happens and mm. you know, how do you sell it? How do you market it? How do you package it up? And I made the transition while I was at Mattel from engineering on the product development team to the brand management team. Um, and we worked very closely together. It was a very cross-functional product development team. And I was like, oh, okay. I really like this business aspect of it because I can be creative, still business-minded. You're still a little bit technical 
But I was very interested in the front end stuff of like, okay, I want to be in front of people. I want to talk about it. I want to represent the product. I don't want to be behind the scenes anymore. So that's probably what I was curious about. And then I just kind of moved my career and sticking with like product launches, I guess yeah. you would say that was the common thread. It was like, how do things come to be from like manufacturing it to now I'm going to put a price on it. Now I'm going to put a tagline on it, put a website on it. It's like, all of it. So product was sort of the thread, but probably more process than anything. That's actually really cool. And and I totally get it, right? As a product marketer myself, where there's there's that natural baton handoff. I mean, obviously, it hopefully is a process that is not just a single handoff, but the idea of, hey, now that it's built or it's being built, right? how are we going to take this to market? Because if we can't have a successful launch, then what's the point of building it in the first place? Do, do you find having that technical background really helps you kind of maybe even have empathy for, for the ones who are actually doing the building, whether it's coding or manufacturing? It, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, cause you have an appreciation that things don't just come to be like, there are dozens of people, smart people that put their brains into this, but then also it is sort of your job to represent the product. So many times a product is, can't just sell itself. And many times a good idea is not the only thing that makes a good product. And you have to, you have to put yourselves in the mindset of what was the purpose of this product and how can I appreciate it more knowing what went into it? Like it's extremely complex. It's very innovative. It's hard to do like all those things go into it, but then you kind of have to say, all right, well now let's take it to the next level. Excellent answer. Yeah, I, I, I've kind of noticed that um, as well. Just the more you kind of get to know different products, uh, all of the background. And I think what's interesting, too, that you can sometimes kind of see is from knowing that background, um, you can even kind of start to understand, too, where there's individuals that maybe had a great idea about something that did make it into the product, but that can help you then kind of find potential customers who may say, this is exactly what I needed. That's cool that you even thought of that. And you're like, well, it wasn't the original intention, but it's in there nonetheless. That's true. So it really helps with meeting that demand at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I think you can just be a better partner to those that were a part of the creation product process because you, you respect that and you bring that to the table. So yeah, it's, um, it's sort of a fascinating underworld, but, um, yeah, lots to learn. Cool. Well, so let's let's kind of take a deep dive into maybe an example of that, right? I mean, you'd mentioned earlier that you worked on the Barbie line for a long time. Ron and I are probably not your average demographic. Well, maybe Ron is because for his daughter, but but I would love to better understand kind of your time. I think you were at Mattel for what eight years. So talk to us about that experience. Talk to us about the Barbie doll line. I mean, it is such an iconic. A brand in, in the world, right? This is true. Um, yeah, maybe one of the most recognizable faces, uh, logos, name, um, y- yeah, all, all of it. I, um, well, I, I, I mean, the, the role that I had there um, started out in engineering and then moved into, you know, brand management and entertainment marketing working for the whole franchise. Um, so I saw many, many different aspects of it. And it was as fun as you would think it was. It was the best. 
Um, it was amazing to work for a toy company. It was an honor to work for a brand that everybody knows about. It was tons of fun. It unlocked creativity that I never knew I had. Um, and I made the best friends, like just people that I, you know, are still, I'm still very close with in that, um, in that field, in that area. And I just, I was a sponge. I was a part of, there was a part of my career where it was before getting married, before having children, before going to graduate school. And so I was just like two feet in it. it I was living and breathing it. Um, it, but really didn't know a thing about what I was learning and what I was doing. I just was totally open and learned pretty much the basics and the bread and butter of my career about market research and finance and engineering and packaging and design. Um, it's the place where you learn it all and you get to learn it on a brand that everybody knows. Um, so, I mean, what do you want to know? Because it is, it's just the most fun. It's the most fun to have. Like we had great brainstorms and great parties and you know, all the things. Well, I'm just imagining, you know, the average person, you pick up a Barbie doll, right? I have nieces and it's a doll, right? But you, having worked in Mattel for so long, there must be so many things running through your brain about, you know, everything that you just talked about from the beginning of the process all the way through production, all the marketing. And of course, you know, Barbie, to its credit, has really done a lot in the last couple of decades to really transform itself, to be much more progressive, to be much more tolerant and, and you know, being much more diverse. Um, and I, I give kudos to, to them. And I'm sure you were part of that. Um, I saw the end, end of that, uh, or by the time I left, they were just beginning it, I should say. Um, but it's a, it's a 60 year old brand that, you know, was at the top of its class and category for so long that I would say that there were a lot of things that just sort of naturally came to be there. I mean, there, there were challenges along the way for sure, but I mean, it, they didn't have to do much to convince people to buy the product. It was beautiful and it was the almost like the single only, only product in its category. And, you know, it, it, it was, there's just so much, uh, there was so much history that they had when I, by the time I joined, that it was just pure fun. Then towards the end of my time there, I mean, things started to get real, right? Like there's a business challenge at hand. There are competitors coming at you left and right. There's different categories. Kids were playing differently and it was starting to get extremely competitive from a financial perspective. And so things started to get more scientific in terms of our research, in terms of our product development, content. This is when digital content was just emerging. Social media was just emerging. And so it just started to get totally different. The world of toy development, the world of playing with toys just completely changed over a course of a few years. So it's, it's probably way different now in terms of like, what is the task at hand? Sure. Uh, what once probably started as like, let's live out our fantasies from like drawing a thing and then sending it to the factory and it suddenly becomes what you want it to be to like, okay, this is, this is real business. You know, we got to <laughs> figure something out. So it's a, uh, yeah, I can tell lots of stories. I learned a lot about pretty much anything about uh, brand building and how do you build a brand because most of the buying process is purely brand recognition. 
for a brand as old as Barbie, um, I would imagine Mattel probably has some very, are there like hard set rules where it's like Barbie will never do this or Barbie will absolutely always have to do this. Are there any like rules where that are very, or that you might be able to share with us or um, that maybe even got challenged while you were there? You know, there were, and I don't know that it was that um, rigid, but it was, Mm -hmm. it was very singular. I will say that there was a style guide, which every brand has, which is a set of specs that say, okay, it's this color, it's this font, it's this voice, it's this everything. And you know, that's what you use as your guidepost. But the difference that from what it is, what it was then to what it is today, I will say it was, it was always Barbie is this one person that looks like this. And it was like, it's not like they were doing it, you know, to be malicious or exclusive, but it just was like, of course, this is who she is. And these are the people in her world. Fine. But like, and that's the story we will tell. Um, But it's a one, one person representation. And I think what's happened now is because of consumer changes and the world is reflecting what the world looks like and what the world wants. um, I've seen the brand expand its point of view about what Barbie represents and what it stands for. And yes, she still exists as the blonde face that you know and love, but it's not just that. It sounds like it's been very, very wide range of visual representations. And that's amazing. It's great. I didn't, I wasn't a part of that, so I cannot take credit, but we talked about it all the time, Yeah, (laughs) all the time, because we were consumers and we were moms and we were people in the world being like, this doesn't feel right. It feels like we're just, feels like we're missing like 99% of the population. So we talked about it all the time and the fact that they got it out and, and were able to do it, it's, that was not easy to do. So good for them. Yeah. A couple fun questions I have to ask. So first, what's maybe something about Barbie, the average customer, maybe even a loyalist wouldn't know. Mm. I mean, I, I will say that the people that create the products and the create the brands are not what you would maybe think. I always, there was always a misconception of people being like, okay, they must all be blonde and tall and white and but when you go inside the walls of Mattel it is so diverse and so eclectic and so just alive with different personalities that that's sort of what I'm saying is like we were not even representing ourselves right. <laughs> let alone the population yeah. like we were different and you know misfits and the whole thing like and it was kind of like we weren't we weren't even like living up our, what our visuals are, what who we, who we are. So the diversity within the building, let alone around the world. Yeah, exactly. And I would say like it, so the headquarters are Southern California and it seems appropriate (laughs) that part, that part. Yes. But you know, even California these days is so diverse and different. It was like, Okay, well, let's let's get out of Malibu, perhaps, you know, because there's so much else. So I, I also have to ask, and I'm sorry if like I, I come off as the super young guy on the call, but, you know, I was born in 91 and I remember it was like 97, 98. I'm like a seven, eight year old kid. And the song Barbie by Aqua comes out. And of course, like <laughs> that's like honestly one of my early memories of turning on the radio 
and just hearing that song nonstop. And I know there was like a lawsuit at one point with Mattel and we don't need to get into that, but I'm actually curious the employees, especially when you were there, which was what at least 10 years after that song came out was, what was the consensus? Was there, was there like, Hey, this is kind of funny. Or was there like that song will never be a played at a function. Oh no, we, we very much embraced it. Um, whether we were able to use it, I don't recall. There were probably some uh, licensing agreements that, you know, could or could not um, hold us back. But the, um, but overall the sentiment was joy, fun, pride, like wacky stuff, like super fun. Even still, I guess I forgot about that song actually, Alex, until you oh, said that. Oh, well listen, um, you, got a, you got a song to play tomorrow morning. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it was fun. It was very much embraced for sure. Cool. And, you know, I, I, I did do a little Google searching before we got on the call. I had to do a little bit of research on Barbie because that's not my forte. <laughs> and I was seeing Barbie dolls selling for like tens of thousands of dollars. Like these like original 1960 whatever. Right. Uh, what do you th- what do you think of that? Or what do you think? Like, what? why does it have such a strong following that someone's willing to spend twenty thousand dollars on a doll? Oh man, well that's that's a lot of money. I I can't really speak. Those are very very small subset of the population. So um, they're special. Those are special people that spend that kind of money. I would say in general, though, I mean it is it's an icon, and the way that people zeroed in on the details and like the craftsmanship or craftspersonship that goes into it, because those dolls that sell for thousands of dollars are, I think, like handmade. Oh, I should show you. We should pause. I I have a Barbie doll that they made for me for my wedding. Okay. Oh, wow. And it's a replica of like my wedding photo, and it's like me. I should show you this. That that is. Uh, (laughs) It's like right there. You know, there are certain dolls that are made, like, from a person's vision and, like, at that scale. Like, it's so hard to do. And so they I, they appreciate and they just, they're obsessed with that process of creating something so, so unique and beautiful. Um, I mean, some of them, like, the designers have, like, a huge following. So there's, like, people by name that people, there's a convention that people will go to. Um, I was never part of that line, so I didn't really see that up front. But I know that, you know, even still, I'll tell people, I'll meet, you know, doll collectors at antique shops or something, and they'll be like, oh, do you know? And then they'll say the name, and I'm like... They owe me five bucks. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So, you know, like any hobby, you have this, like, appreciation for the details that go into it. That's awesome. Well, listen, we're going to go to break. But when we come back, really excited to kind of talk about, you know, a little bit more of your family life and talk about some of the things you're really passionate about, um, you know, regarding some nonprofit work. So we'll be right back on that. Hey, it's Ron here. And Alex and I wanted to take a moment first to thank you for being a listener to our podcast. Secondly, I've got a challenge for you. This week, if you could, find somebody who maybe isn't familiar with the show and turn them on to it. We'd appreciate it. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Between Two Studs. We're here with Jen Bassick. We're talking about the wonderful world of Barbie, talking about engineering, talking about Anthony Bourdain. We had we, we just covered a lot of ground. 
Uh, we're going to switch gears now. We're going to talk a little bit about the impact of COVID, not to get too, too much of a downer. But, you know, Jen, having worked for you, as we talked about earlier, I know how important family is to you. And you, you mentioned it on the first half of the program. Can you talk about how adapting to COVID with two young daughters, what's that been like? Well, so we're unfortunately in um, year two of living like this. And so I will have to say that there's been phases of this that we've probably all gone through, but as a parent, that applies as well. And so we're kind of, you know, at the very beginning, we're in this place of just kind of making the best of everything and being safe and being together and all that. That, that you know, rode us through 2020, I would say. And my kids were very, very adaptable. Ron, I don't know how your daughter adapted, but, you know, they were, they were, I kept asking, like, what do you think about the coronavirus? So when we called it that, and they were like, whatever, it's fine. Like, this is just life, which is also sad. Um, That's amazing that a seven-year-old would have that level of maturity. Like, that's, yeah, this global pandemic. It's just something that happens, Mom. Yeah, mind you, it was 2020, right? It was an election year, and I was very tuned into the current events, and so they were as well, and they picked up on all of the news. I don't even know if that was good for them, but they saw it, you know, they observed it and they know, they knew what was going on. And we led with the scientific aspect of it because we have, you know, my brother-in-law, my husband's brother is a geneticist, genetic professor at Stanford. And he, this is his life, you know? And so we would often talk about, well, Uncle Mike does this for a living. Like he studies diseases and this is a real thing like there are people behind the research and what they're trying to do and you know kind of making that um production and operational end of it was also my nerdiness tying into like how the vaccine comes to be and all these things so we just talked about it we talked about everything going on because you couldn't shield them from it it was like so incorporated and ingrained in everything and so on one hand, we tried to make the best of it. You know, we went on a road trip. We drove to California. We spent three weeks there and like explored the United States. So that was great. And they were very um, open and adventurous to all of that, but knew oh, the restrictions. Jen, Jen, I don't mean to interrupt, but can, are, yeah. are you willing to talk on the air about the secret, the hack, the tr hack of traveling that you discovered? <laughs> sure. Uh, Jen and I Although, were working together at the time. Well, maybe you don't want to tell. Listen, with the tens of thousands of listeners that we have, I'm kidding. Yeah. You know, this, this, this life hack. executives. Mm -hmm. This life hack might be ruined, but can you, if you don't mind, I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Sure. I will share. Um, I, so I should say that my family, my husband included, like mostly, he's very particular about germs. And so we tend to be a little bit on the extreme end in terms of cleanliness and, and uh, you know, hand washing and such, especially bathroom related things. So on this road trip, we made it a point to stop exclusively at Holiday Inn Expresses for two reasons. One, they are every 30 miles, like just, you can just, at any given moment, be like, I have to go to the restroom. Time it. And then you can be like, there's one coming up in 15 minutes. Can you wait? And then everyone would be like, yep. Number two, they are just 
so clean and not occupied. And so we would just walk in and then use the bathroom and we wouldn't have to deal with dirty restrooms. So I imagine the first one or two times, it's gotta be a little, little scary. You're walking into the lobby. You're not actually staying there. Oh, correct. Yes. But I but, don't like doing it. But I it's mean, brilliant. I like, it, it's great. It's great because I am also particular, but I don't want to be the first one in. So we send my husband with a child. So that's the that's a great way because no one's going to like, you know, you see a little cute kid. They're like, oh. <laughs> so he kind of breaks the ice and then I follow. This is like this is like uh, the George Costanza of of traveling around the country. Like he he knew I don't know if you watched Seinfeld, but he would know. He pick yeah, any corner sure. in, in Manhattan. He'd for say sure. this is the best bathroom. Same yes. thing. We we have that here in Chicago as well. So you know this is this is. <laughs> I mean, you got to be street smart. You have to know where to go. Um, so I know I totally I I love that. Too. I totally hijacked the conversation, but I remember working for you and you told me that story, and I'm like. That's incredible. That's like true road warrior stuff. I'm embarrassed because there were some people that were like, ooh, you went, you drove, you know, to cross country. Like, tell us where to go. And yes, we stopped at national parks and we, yes, we saw lots of amazing, beautiful things. But I would often be like, you should stop at Holiday Inn Expresses because during COVID, no one wanted to like go in these big public restrooms. So I was like. Well, and a lot of, a lot of those were closed too. Right, a, a lot That's of those, true. like on the freeway. Yeah, this is 2020, so yeah, things were much different then. That's that's. I don't know where we go from there. I, yeah, what do you do? This is like downhill from here. I love it though. I mean, the la- next time Alex and I enter into that whole situation when we were driving on the PCH and we couldn't find a restroom, I'm gonna be set now. I mean, you can't really go wrong because they're not gonna turn you away. It's very clean. Also. The, the, no one uses the first floor because they're, they have their own bathroom upstairs. Right. Yeah. Right. If I'm a, if I'm staying at the hotel, why would I use the lobby bathroom? Right. Right. There you go. They're, they're asking for it. They want you to go. <laughs> yeah. They're begging you to. <laughs> Please get off the highway, come to use our facilities and then leave. This is true. And I will say we tested it with other chains. And they're either not as welcoming or not welcoming at all, first of all, I should say. Secondly, not, um, some of them are locked and like the whole thing just becomes like a botched operation. I'm looking at you, Best Western. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Best Western, uh, yeah. Some of the, Radisson, no, no, no Radisson. We're never going to get them to sponsor us now. We're... Oh, sorry, yes. Would you actually like still get something from the gift shop or whatever that little like no, area? Or no. we just like, nah, we're just going to. No, because that would draw attention. It would. Yeah. Yeah. Because so then, then they, they might ask you, oh, do you want to charge it to your room? And then you got to then. I don't want to make eye contact. Yeah. It's, it's a whole thing. Yeah, just get, get out. Yeah. I like it. Like, act like you know what you're doing. <laughs> kind of shifting back. Cause I, I do have, uh, <laughs> this question it's, it's, it could be interpreted negatively, but I, I don't actually mean it to be. Do you think, because I think this is an interesting conversation, do you think COVID will have a long-term impact on, on today's generation of children, whether it's good or bad? I do. I do. Bad. In the macro sense, I think 
the lack of in-person connection, the lack of in-person school for some time, quite some time. I think we even know statistically that like, you know, grades have went down, have gone down, depression rates are skyrocketing. There's like a lot of data around this. Yeah, we already know the impact and I think it's like incredibly scary and sad. Yeah. We really, we, we know what's going on today, but how will this impact the children today in 20 years? You know, I, I, I guess what, what was interesting in, in when I was listening to what you were talking about your children is for someone to say, you know, that's just life. Like, this is just something we have to deal with. I mean, maybe your, your child is just really special, which I'm sure they are. But like, that's an incredibly mature thing to be dealing with as a seven-year-old. And what could be the potential positive um, long-term maybe benefits? I mean, Ron, what do you think? I know one thing, one thing has been my daughter has very, um, we learned very quickly about like uh, reading about the polio vaccine. So that was something that she learned about Dr. Salk and she was very understanding. And that was really kind of a good way for her to understand how and why. But what was interesting from that, and this is something that she still brings up, even though now she's been fully vaccinated, she's like, where is my sugar cube with a vaccine? If everyone could get that, they totally would get their vaccines. And I'm like, I like your thinking there. Eve. I didn't know that was the thing. They were given sugar cubes as they were getting the shot? No, they would actually put the vaccine on the sugar cube for the polio vaccine. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Got it. But she's like, don't give me a shot. Kids hate shots. Give me a sugar pill that's got the vaccine in it, mm. and then we're cool. I was like, yeah, but you're getting vaccinated today. Sorry. Well, so let me ask you, I and mean, this is for both of you. Uh, I don't have children. You collectively have three girls. Do, do you think that there's an opportunity? I mean, we're, we're, I think we all agree that we really want women to, to get more involved in STEM. Right. Do you think there's an opportunity when you're talking about at a young age, you know, seven, eight, nine year old girls learning about you know, polio vaccines, learning about covid vaccines? Do you think there's an opportunity where women might be more interested in getting into the sciences? I hope so. I hope so. In like the medical profession, too. I think yeah. they're starting to see. I mean, we have a lot of medical profession professionals in my family. And so they're, you know, they're connecting those dots, I think. Uh, but there's so much, I believe, that, like, you know, everybody's playing a role. I, I have a fondness for the arts. So I think that, I don't know, I've been reading a lot about, like, you know, from all this darkness, there's going to be this, like, beautiful emergence of art that comes out of it. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe that's what they choose to do. I don't know. I hope so. But, oh, gosh, I, don't, I, I just, it's some dark times, so... I think sure. for me, for me, Jen, I think I, because it's dark times, I really want to look at COVID as, well, what is, and I'm sure we all feel this way, but what, what could be the, the, the benefit of something that's so bad, right? And if it's an opportunity where we have a proliferation of scientists and medical professionals, I mean, I think that could be a really great thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, more of that. I'd love that. I would, I've, I had been operating around this idea of like, you can't shield them from everything bad, but like you can give them tools to cope with those things. And so I'm trying to like, see how do we do that? You know, like we, there's just, you're gonna have to like teach them how to navigate just like how we all have to learn. So maybe this is part of it. Yeah, I, I know like 
I kind of have a similar approach with my daughter and it's just, it's kind of interesting because I know some people will kind of remark that uh, just her responses on a lot of things, she almost responds like a little adult. Um, but it's kind of like, we're not going to oversimplify things if it doesn't need to be. And she's, she's of the mindset that sometimes you need to ask questions about things that you don't know or understand. And that's kind of its own thing, but it's been kind of weird too, where in Georgia, it's obviously a little bit different than it is in Illinois, but one of the things for us has been she's been able to do the the in-school learning face-to-face uh, -face, uh, for like the past year and a half. And I think that's been helpful, but it's, it's also something where we have a lot of friends that are also not able to do that for various reasons. And I think it's definitely going to probably... I think your your comment about afterwards the art and I think there's probably going to be a whole appreciation of the human experience of kind of being able to hug and embrace people without needing to be like, are you vaccinated? Did you wash your hands? Are you sure you haven't been sick or around anybody who has been in the past? Once that all fades, I think that there will be some incredibly beautiful um, things that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, let's hope so. I think I think you're right. I, hopefully we, those that have an appreciation or like recognize that kind of shepherd that forward. Cause I'm starting to see, you know, we have a responsibility. It's like, how do we make sure that we become that no one's going to like force us to do it unless we make it happen. So if that's why it's exhausting and that's why we're all very tired of it. Yeah. But. Well, speaking of passions and, you know, human improvement, I, I do want to talk about a nonprofit that you're really passionate about. Gilda's Club Chicago. I know you've been involved for several years and were recently made president of the associate board. So first and foremost, congratulations on that. I, I am curious, can you talk about your, your passion for this organization and maybe just at a high level for the listeners, what is this organization? What's the purpose or mission? Sure. Yes. So Gilda's Club. So thank you. Uh, for that shout out, Gilda's Club Chicago is a nonprofit organization based in Chicago, named after Gilda Radner, the esteemed Second City, Second City Saturday Night Live cast member, hilarious actor, comedian extraordinaire. She died of she she was diagnosed with breast cancer in the 80s, and you know unfortunately died from it but she throughout her whole treatment and diagnosis and experience always felt that no one should have to go through this experience alone and so if you think about the 80s and what the cancer died what basically science of you know having a cancer diagnosis and being treated with cancer has changed so much since then but back then it was you know, kind of taboo to talk about it out loud and kind of taboo to talk about it in a positive way. Everyone was always talking about it in kind of negative tones. And she brought a levity to being diagnosed with cancer that no one was doing at the time. No one was laughing about cancer diagnosis. No one was talking about it in terms of like the the joy of life and thinking about what you should do while, during your time. And so she just very much believed in not being alone through this, through this experience and kind of seeing the positive part of it. And so this organization started 25 years ago with her name attached to it. And it's really just an organization that helps anyone going through a cancer diagnosis or treatment. And when I say anyone, it's not just the patient, 
It could be caregivers, it could be children, it could be families, it could be ch uh, parents of a, a patient, anyone that's impacted, and they help them navigate through that experience, not in a medical way, but from in a social emotional way. Um, we have tons of organizations in the world that take care of the medical aspect, hospitals, clinics, research organizations, and we're grateful for all of those. But there isn't a lot of support around just how to process a diagnosis. Like, and I was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma not that long ago and have quickly come to realize that beyond being treated and diagnosed, there's like a whole other piece of it that nobody helps you with. And having that kind of outlet or community that's there to support you and my family is so important. And so that's what Gilda's Club is there to do. And all of the services that they provide are totally free and now virtual. So you really have it all accessible to you. Wow. I, honestly, it's something that and until I met you and you were telling me about this organization, I'd, I'd never really thought about it so much. But you're right. There's the medical component. But then there's, wait, there's this whole other component, which is you're living, you're fighting this. Uh, or, or maybe someone, a loved one is, and, and having that support system, I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. Let me, let me ask you this, as, as a listener, how can you find out if, if there is a, a, a chapter in, in, their lo in where they're living? How do you get involved? So in, there are several chapters. Um, they're all affiliated with the cancer support community. There's a bunch of different um, organizations that they, they partner with in order to get the resources and the infrastructure that they need to operate. Within Gilda's Club, I will say there are therapists, there are social workers, there are yoga instructors, artists, all these people that are help, here, there to help you. And of course, I said all of this is free. So financially, of course, this is, you know, you can support if you are able to give. We host a number of fundraisers throughout the year and we welcome everybody's financial support. But many people come to support the organization in the form of just volunteering. And for the events that we do in normal times, you can be a volunteer because none of this is, we can't do this without, you know, people showing up and coordinating and hosting events. So just that physical presence is, you know, very much appreciated. And then I will say, like, if you're not able to support and you do need services, just making sure that people recognize that an organization like Gilda's Club is there for any diagnosis that you're impacted with. It could be a parent, it could be a, a loved one, and you are, you know, kind of coping with the whole experience. Just know that um, an organization like Gilda's Club and probably several others are there to help guide you through it. And so spread the word. If you, if you come across anyone that's struggling with a diagnosis in any way, shape or form, just let them know that there is um, a community that can help, help them through it. That's incredible. So, so we're gonna post this on our, our LinkedIn, or uh, on our Instagram post, but is, is it, if we just Google Gilda's Club Chicago, is, is there a link to the website and an opportunity for, for donating or volunteer services? Is that all right there? Yes, yes. So gildasclubchicago.org. Oh my gosh, I hope that's the site. But you can find them on 
Instagram and social media and follow them that way. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me and I can direct you, you know, to help. It's a small organization, so you shouldn't have any trouble like getting to what you need. Well, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that story. It seems like a really great organization that I definitely, on a, on a personal note, once, once life kind of returns to normal, I'd love to get involved as well, being here in Chicago. So kind of in, in that same vein, right? I, I think what's amazing, and I mean this sincerely, what I really, really respect about you, one of many things, is how involved you are with nonprofits in general. I mean, Gilda's Club is just one piece of what you're involved with. Can you talk about some of the other nonprofits you're involved in or organizations, nonprofits that you're passionate about? Sure. I, I just came off of a board position uh, for an organization called Women in Agile. And Women in Agile is a group that supports women that are considering or currently in the field of software development or agile software development, and which is a very underrepresented career for women. And so we're there to give resources and support, very similar to people that are considering this as a career. And our, their goal is to normalize the idea of women in the field of software engineering because it shouldn't be that this is an underrepresented field. It's it's there's so many ways to give your gifts as as females, and they shouldn't be intimidated. They shouldn't be scared. Definitely want to flip the equation um, and make sure more women are represented. So I am no longer on the board there, but you absolutely can support uh, women in agile. Excellent. And final question on the topic. You know, I think I'm guilty of this. Right when I was in college, I did a lot of volunteer work. And then life gets in the way, or at least it, it perceivingly gets in the way. You're way busier than me. You know, you're married, you have two children, you have a full-time job, yet you find a way to, to make time for this. How Can you explain maybe someone who is either intimidated by the idea of, of finding time or just doesn't even know where to get started? Like, what was your journey into volunteering? Yeah, I never really had much of a volunteer aspect to my life, really, until I had kids. I started to get involved with their schools and with Girl Scouts and like the PTO and PTA and all that stuff. And it was really just like an afterthought. Like I was working full time and, uh, you know, I, I just was doing what I could, like most of us. And then it really just started to become like I just... I really, I wanted to lend my, my skills and my help because these organizations are struggling. <laughs> like they're nonprofits and they have no resources. And if you believe in a mission so much, you should just like roll your sleeves up and just do something because I have just witnessed firsthand like how hard it is to get things done with not a lot of hands. So to watch these like groups of people that you care about in these communities that need your help and services really just not see their vision through or not get resources like lived out and they look around and they go, well, who can help us? And it's really just a matter of someone raising their hand. So it's that simple. It's really just like, if you believe it, just show up, just show up. So that's one of my missions with like being the president of the associate board. I'm like, you're here for a reason make it count like don't waste your time and so there's a there's a lot of low engagement i will say people are not there they're not giving it their all and so i would say like thank you for showing up but like that's all it takes really is like to be committed 
and be passionate about it and just show up. Like people just, they need anything and everything, but you really have to like care. You really have to be passionate about it and then you'll, everything else will just come naturally. Well, I, I'm sincere in saying that when, when life returns to normal and there's, you know, some of these in-person events, please let us know. And we'll happily, you know, a lot of our listeners are in the Chicagoland area, happy to promote um, some of these upcoming events. I remember, I'm sure you do, that there was an event planned on like, it was Gilda's Club. It was, it was like the day that the world ends, the, the day that. 312. It was on 312. Yeah. And uh-huh. I remember like what the office, because we were still coworkers at the time, I think closed on the 11th. And I remember we were like, yeah. are, are we going to go? Or is this going to, is this going to happen? And uh, yeah. so I, I, yes, I remember. So I'm looking forward to more events like that happening and supporting. So, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, support your local nonprofits, I would say. Doesn't have to be Gilda's Club, although we appreciate that. But, you know, in Atlanta, I'm sure there's amazing orgs. And they're, they put on fun events. So, if anything, you know, have a great time. Um, but there's a whole operation back there that needs your help and support. So, thanks. Well, thank you. And, for all of our listeners, make sure to check out this episode's notes. We're actually going to provide links to all of those organizations so that way you can check it out. So thank you. Yippee. Love it. All right. So so Jennifer, I heard that you grew up and currently live in Chicago, right? But then you spent a large chunk of your life actually in Southern California. Moving to L.A. must have been quite the jump, right? This is true. Yes. Yes. I. A um, little bit warmer, was, I assume. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a Midwestern girl, guys. Like, I went to Iowa. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I didn't know about California living. But I was 22 and eyes wide open. So that's the time to do it, I think. So you moved to L.A. And you were there for for how long? 12 years. 12 years. And, And now you're back. But I say you're back, but there is this caveat where... You know, we're we're friends on on Instagram. I see you going back quite frequently, right? Whether it's in the winter, you go back for a couple weeks here and there. So I know you still have a love for for Southern California. What's the number one thing that you would say you love about Southern California? And then what's the number one thing about the Chicagoland area that you love? Mm. I mean, other than the weather, which is like so obvious, things are just nice and neat and clean in a way that like I guess the aesthetics of it right it's like things are for the most part just lovely and like refreshing and good for the soul like they it makes you feel like you're on vacation and things are bright and sunshiny and it just it's just very pleasant and I think all this exists in places like Hawaii and Florida but there's like a different tone in California, which is like, I don't know, more, I don't want to say aspirational, but like it's sort of on a different level that, than other places that I visit that have the same climate. Would you say, as someone who's never lived but visited many times, there is this feeling of aspiration of wanting to follow your dreams? Is, is there maybe culturally something happening that might not exist elsewhere in the country? Mm. Yeah, I think there's this sort of undertone of image or like, and I don't mean that in a status way. I think it's like in like just the way things appear 
to be. They like a very a, a focus on how things are um, presented. Maybe that's the way it feels. So I don't know that that really. I haven't really seen much of that lately. But to your question about what do I miss about Chicago, or like I guess what the best part of Chicago is, it's sort of the opposite of that, right? Like I appreciate that at Chicago in Chicago you don't have to do that, and you can show up in your like pajama pants to the grocery store and like un- and wear like a huge coat, and like it just doesn't <laughs> matter. So on one hand, I like that things are like presented well and they're very pleasing when I go to California. But like here, it's just off. Like, I don't think that 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 would be weird here. And so the grit here is sort of what I really appreciate. Yeah. And and I wonder if some of that grit just has to do with the fact that we're not close to an ocean, right? Like you have tough winters. I remember when I first, it might've been before you started at Dialogue Tech. I remember it was like, I was brand new to Chicago and I was chatting with a coworker. I don't know who it was. And I was like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Like, I'm brand new, just figuring out what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to the beach. I go, you're going to one of the coasts? You're going to you're going to the East Coast? No, 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 Lake Michigan. I go, a lake is not a beach, my friend. But, if it, you know, if, if, if you've lived in the Midwest your whole life, I mean, I've met people here that have never seen the ocean, right? The, tr- mm. the, the real ocean. So, I mean, I get it, but as someone who's not from the Midwest, that's like totally foreign to me. Yeah. So I imagine for you to go to LA, to go to Southern California, and it's just like, I, I would think beach culture is just a huge part of LA. You know, big part of San Diego. It is, but it's also not. Is that weird? Like, cause it's so big that I know people, like people in my family that like, they're just not beach people. And I, I, I don't know. Like I, I went to the beach, but I wasn't like there all the time. I lived like six blocks away or whatever. But it, and I guess unless you're surfing, maybe, and you're or boating. I, this is sounding so ignorant, but I'm like I wasn't like a big beach person. But we lived very close to it. <laughs> but I think because it's so large, also and somewhat inaccessible, I will say, like it's hard to get places. So. Sure. Well, so in that same kind of, you know, category, we've asked, I think, every guest, this is the last question, I think every guest that we've had on from the Chicago area, we ask them, hey, what's your take on Deep Dish? And you saw Ron and I earlier drinking a shot of Malort. Be honest. What's your take on Malort? Uh, I'll start with Malort. Not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I just, I can't, I I think if you, if it takes like 12 times to like appreciate it, I can't get to that 12. At least. Yeah. Like I can't get there. I can't, can't get past like four. So I can't, I can't really commit, but good, good for Chicago for having like a thing that people follow. Deep dish as being a Chicagoan is not my thing. I eat it. Like if it was served to me, I would definitely eat it. And I crave it every once in a while. But I'm like a tavern style, like squares, thin, like that, that's where what that's the pizza I grew up with. So And I believe that you listened to the episode recently. Did didn't Ed talk about tavern style pizza? Oh yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. yeah. It's, can, can you can you kind of just refresh what is that? Because I agree, that is like sure. what real Chicagoans 
So we actually, my husband and I went on like a pizza tour by like the Hungry Hound. Steve Dolinsky was a local food critic. So like, I know this because he taught me this, but Tavern Style is um, named that because they would serve, they needed something within the bars, you know, I can't remember, I don't know exactly when, but to entice people to drink more beer. And so they needed salty, they needed a salty snack that they would serve that just sort of whetted your appetite and then you you consume more beer. And so they create a tavern style pizza in its saltiness and in its small bites as a way to get people to drink more. And it's delicious. It's like a thin cracker crust. So you don't eat it for the crust and getting like uh, sausage and mushroom is sort of the like Chicago thing. And it's fantastic. And a can of old style. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so with that, the, that wraps up the show. Jen, it has been a tremendous pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, with that, we wrapped up episode 32. Woo-hoo! Thanks again so much. Thanks, Thank guys.